Coming up on Garden Talk. A hollow stem compared to a solid stem will relate to typically higher production in uh, trichomes. We can stress a female out and make her create nanners, then that means the hermaphroditic trait is dominant. Terpene profiles from that stem rub, I always stress that it's so important. One particular alios or one particular version per gene, that is homozygous status. That's what we want to achieve. When you see F2, 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 that's when we've opened up to the most choices of phenotypes and our characteristics and our alios is what we call them. That's when we start our selective breeding process. Don't get discouraged. Understanding it's going to take your time. Understand that you definitely are going to have to have a passion for it. You've got to have a love for it because this is literally your life's work. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 31. In this episode, I interview Zaza Genetics. He's been gardening for six years, and he grows a variety of plants, such as collard greens, tomatoes, squash, kale, medicinal varieties, and watermelons. He is also a breeder, and that's what we're going to be getting into today. He's been breeding for 15 years, started out with dogs, then transitioned over to plant breeding. In this podcast episode, he talks about plant breeding on an intermediate level. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's podcast to help make that goal possible. Dutch Pro is a sponsor of the podcast. Coupon code MRGROW10DP will get you a discount on their products. They are a plant fertilizer company that has been around for over 30 years. They originated in Amsterdam, and their nutrients are available in several countries across the world. They have everything needed for proper plant nutrition, from base nutrients to additives and pH regulators. I will leave a link to Dutch Pro's Amazon store down in the description section below. And don't forget to use coupon code MRGROW10DP for a discount on their products. A big supporter of this podcast is Spider Farmer. They sponsor this podcast, and I use their LED grow lights. Spider Farmer now has a bar style series of LED grow lights. They have the SE3000, a four bar fixture for a three foot by three foot grow space. The SE5000, a six bar fixture for a four foot by four foot grow space. And the SE7000, a six bar fixture for a five foot by five foot grow space. I will leave a link to Spider Farmer down in the description section below, and you can use discount code MrGrowAt5 during checkout for a discount on their products. Thanks to AC Infinity for sponsoring this podcast. They sent me over their grow tent, which has a canvas density of 2000D, making them the thickest grow tent on the market today. It has an aluminum plate that mounts your controller to the grow tent with a lightproof pass-through for cable routing. The frame has 50% thicker steel poles and carries two times more weight than the standard grow tents. Coupon code MRGROWIT will get you a discount on their products, and I'll leave a link to their website down in the description section below. All right, now let's get into the episode. All right, we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Zaza from Zaza Genetics. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah, glad to have you on. We're going to talk about breeding today. So I actually did a video with Vader OG from Ocean Grown Genetics. A while back, we did a beginner video on breeding. And this one, I feel like we're going to get more into more intermediate things. Now, some of these questions, some of the viewers might ask and they might say, you've already talked about this on the last video. But a lot of things with breeding, I feel like, are subjective. Right, like when we start talking about traits and stuff that breeders look for. So we're gonna get into all of that. That's why some of those questions are asked on both that video as well as this video or podcast episode, I should say. And then I did actually have people submitting questions through Instagram. So if you're not following me on Instagram at mr.growit, follow me on there and you get a chance to ask questions in the future to future guests. So before we actually get into the nitty gritty of plant breeding, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into gardening? Yeah, yeah. So my name is Salam, originally from uh, New Jersey, born and raised. So um, my initial passion for gardening um, started, ironically, sounds weird, but it started with dogs. Um, We um, learned a family tree of dogs and um, that kind of ended up 
learning through research that it was well connected with plants as well in gardening. Um, my gardening experience started about five years ago, outdoors, um, vegetables, uh, um, kale, collard greens, all the good stuff. Um, especially, um, it kicked up really uh, in the last couple of years with the whole virus thing and everything. Everybody wanted to kick up their immune system. And, you know, so we get into all the natural plants and medicines. And um, that's, that's kind of where my, my gardening started about five years ago, outside, actually, with the vegetables. Nice. And I know before we started recording, you had talked about how you started with dog breeding 15 years ago and how a lot of that knowledge actually transfers over to plants, which I thought was pretty interesting. And, and we're going to get deeper into it. I got to ask, in your opinion, what makes a reputable breeder? You know, why are you a reputable breeder? I thought that was a good question from somebody through Instagram that asked yeah, that. Definitely. Um, that's important, too. That's, that's a really good question. As far as me, transparency. Um, transparency and education like that's that's the most important thing being able to educate not only your friends and, and your fellow bromies or gardeners but also if you you know if you have followers if you have customers whatever your niche is whatever you have uh, educate each one teach one um, and, and I think that's what makes uh, a reputable breeder being open with, with everybody you deal with gotcha now, there was somebody who asked a question through Instagram. He's got a very small space, and he wants to know, how much space do you need to micro-breed, I guess you can call it, right? What's it like the smallest space that you can actually breed in? Yeah, that's, that's a new term, but um, I've, I've, it's new to me. But um, it doesn't take much space at all. That's the good thing about breeding. Um, you know, when you think uh, in terms of gardening, you, you tend to need a lot of space as far as um, generally creating uh, vegetables and flowers, you know, you tend to need more space. But when it comes to making seeds, you don't need as much space. Uh, typically, ideally, uh, two by four tent. Uh, if you could, two tents would even be better. Um, you know, but that's pretty much all you would need. What's your setup look like? Um, I run a two by two. I'm, I'm sorry, two by four. I also run a four by four. Um, I did have a two by two up, but I took it down. Uh, my my uh, mother, I have a mother, uh, Mac one, which uh, typically got way too big. She's about eight feet tall. She got way too big for her two by two, so that we didn't, don't use anymore. Gotcha. So as a home grower, you can definitely do breeding. You know, just a couple tents, oh, you can definitely get away with it. So that, that's cool absolutely. to hear. Now let's talk about selection process. So this is where it's kind of like it gets into subjective, right? It comes down to breeder's preference. Okay, so starting with male plants, how do you select your male plants for breeding? So male plants is a tricky one too because typically you'll never really know. It's really hard to determine what traits a male is going to pass off to a female offspring. You know, it's kind of like similar to like, um, you know, if uh, a dad, a dad is it's going to be hard to look at look at a dad and say, I wonder what his daughter's bra size may be once she is born. Or, you know, it's <laughs> so it's, it's really similar to that. And um, we we have ways and tricks that we um, that we can kind of you know use our best uh, kind of give us the best idea of what will be a good true male breeder. And um, stem rub stimulation of the you know getting. Kind of getting an idea of what those terpenes, strong terpene profiles, and that typically will relate to good flavors and, and, and strong plants, ultimately medicine. And as well, um, hollow stem. A hollow stem usually, compared to a solid stem, will relate to typically higher uh, content as far as production in uh, trichomes, um, if that's something that you're, you're interested in. Um, and probably the biggest one structure as well structure and vigor vigor is um probably the biggest one uh, a vigorous growing plant uh vigorous growing plant is going to be one that you want to um use in your you know your, your, your system your line gotcha now i know some breeders they'll, they'll stress their plants you know whether they do training or some folks will let their plants grow naturally 
do you let your plants kind of grow naturally Christmas tree style or are you like training your plants and kind of stressing them out in certain ways to kind of help determine whether or not that's a selectable plant? Absolutely. Stress testing is very important as well. Um, at different stages, you definitely want to stress test the male for the selection process. And that's probably the only reason I would ever train uh, a potential uh, male for, you know, breeding would be to, uh, you know, stress test um, training, uh, defoliating, uh, bending, twisting, turning, all of that good stuff. Um, that's pretty much, you would only do it for that reason, not necessarily for flower production. Now, what about like feeding, I guess, kind of in relation to stress testing in a sense to you kind of give them like a lack of nutrients. I think some breeders do that. They'll run low on the nutrients or they'll try to go heavy on the nutrients to kind of stress and see how the plant evolves and then kind of make their decision off of that. Do you do any of that or? Uh, well, spike in ni uh, nitrogen is typically good. Uh, a really high spike in nitrogen, um, kind of give it a little overdose of nitrogen will uh, be a good, you know, stressor. Um, I don't necessarily, me personally, I don't uh, underfeed. It's, um, I think it'll take too long to kind of get the results that I'm looking for as to where a spike in nitrogen is going to give you that instant kind of indication of this plant and whether it can, you know, how hardy it is. Okay, that makes sense. So the plant's been growing, male plant, you have identified male plant, you flipped it over to the light cycle, for example, and now it starts producing pollen sacs. Pollen sacs produce, you know, the first time I ever grew a male plant, seeing the pollen sacs within a couple weeks and like opening within, I think within three weeks, like I thought it was just super quick, you know what I mean? I wasn't expecting that the first time around. Do you collect pollen and save it and store it for breeding in the future? Or do you just let your males grow to a certain point, put them in with females, and kind of let them get down and dirty. <laughs> yes, that's a good question. Too. So typically, it's it's it's. I mean, ideally, you want to do the latter. You want to be able to sit a male in there with the females, and ultimately, through my experience, I've seen a difference in um, seed production, uh, bigger, beautiful seeds, and better offspring. Um, even the the female, they seem to react to knowing that the uh, male is in the tent with them. And um, they seem to perk up. They seem to be happier. Uh, it just seems like a better experience overall for the females. Um, but that's always not ideal as far as, you know, you can't always do it. So it's much more convenient to have pollen stored and uh, be able to, you know, just uh, put it, in, in, you know, self or just pollinate the plant. Especially in the terms of when you when you have to store pollen for back crossing. Uh, back crossing is very important when you're um, trying to stabilize a line. So... That is, um, you have to store pollen for the most part in that sense. Can you tell us how you store the pollen? Uh, well, I would um, pretty much, uh, well, depending on whether it's autoflower or photoperiod, it's a really big difference. So, um, like you said, like an actual male plant is going to have an avalanche of pollen. Like It's going to be impossible not to, you know, it's so easy to collect it. You pretty much just want to make sure that you dry it out and, um, then store it within a, uh, whether you want to store it long-term, you want to put it in a freezer in a little glass jar or, uh, you know, or in a refrigerator if you plan to use it really soon. Uh, but autoflowers is a much more intricate process. Like you're going to really have to go in and actually use tweezers and pull the pollen sacs. In most cases, the pollen is much less viable. It's much less there. It's barely any. So you want to, um, Collected by tweezers, as many as you can, pollen sack by pollen sack. At that point, I would then use um, a strainer, like a bowl strainer. Um, I would use the bowl strainer and kind of shake uh, shake everything I got in the bowl strainer to um, get the little bit of pollen. If so, if I can get it that way, perfect. If not much comes out, then we got to kind of individually break each one open uh, with the tweezers and uh, remove each and every pollen sac because um, that's when you get into moisture. Moisture can destroy pollen very easily, immediately, and make it non-viable. So you have to make sure that you, um, typically I use dehumidifiers as well when I'm uh, collecting pollen. In that room, you want to lay it out flat on the table if possible, have a dehumidifier, keep the humidity at least 40 or below if possible. Um, you know, that's the ideal setting for pollen and uh, 
you want to uh, let it dry out for a couple hours. Make sure it's completely dry. No, no pollen sacs are in there. Clean it out good, and um, then you can collect it once it's dry and stored. And like same way with uh, regular mail with freezer or fridge. Okay, that makes sense. Somebody through Instagram asked, uh, and I don't know if this is true or not. They said they hear that keeping pollen in baking soda, baking powder, can help. So would mixing the pollen into baking powder in order to stabilize the humidity work? I wouldn't do it personally. I've never heard that method my, myself personally, but um, it's not something. I mean, it's uh, it's always something worth looking into. Like you know. Um, we learn every day, so I'll definitely be looking into that after the show. I tell you that. Yeah, that was the first time I've ever heard of it either. I thought it was an sure. interesting question to bring up. So let's get into female plants. So you know, selecting the female. What do you do? What characteristics do you look for? So on and so forth. So the female selection process is a lot more fun, in my opinion. You know, everyone loves females. You know, so in this case. Um, it starts really early, uh, and and that's why uh, you, you you know that's why we use or, or that's why I use the power the paper towel in, in, in for germination is um that's that's when the selection process starts. In many cases, um, if those tap roots don't come out really vigorous and, and strong, you know I'll put them to the side, you know or, or I'll mark them. But you know you want to start that selection process right there within that paper towel, and um, that's when the fun begins. You know you get to actually see and you know you do the same stem rubs and but you you know you know it's going to be a female so you pretty much it's, it's a visible it's a visible thing when you have um multiple plants to select from typically uh you know you just gotta know what to look for so you're you're even from the beginning you're killing off plants right away from when they're seed yeah. now are you looking for yeah. things while they're growing in veg seedlings are you wiping out seedlings are you I'm wiping out seeds yeah wiping Actual out seeds within, yep and not all the seeds are going to make it out of the paper towel uh, even even the ones that have uh, decent tap roots they they may not you know if I'm looking for real real vigor then I need to um, make sure I'm I'm only picking the biggest strongest ones with the biggest, strongest tap roots. And then from there, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, we start the stress test uh, on females pretty early as well. So because, um, you know, that hermaphroditic trait, can, uh, that's when it'll come out in a female pretty early during the veg stage, whether it's light or, uh, you know, heat, or those are typically, I'll even use artificial wind, um, you know, blowing high winds on it and um, nitrogen spikes and things like that. They'll typically, if that... If that trait is dominant, uh, we just want to we, we can bring it out pretty pretty early during the veg stage in a female, pretty easily. So you get the female plant growing all the way into flower. You know, as it's going along, you're 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 killing off plants. Are there any t- particular characteristics that you're looking for in the female plant? I don't know if you touched on that. Or... Typically, the same that we look for within a a male. Besides, um. It's just it's just a lot more obvious, like trichome production. Of course, when you know you're getting those trichomes really early and uh, all hanging out on the fan leaves, and you know those are always really good signs. Um, you know, terpene profiles from that stem rub. I always stress that it's so important on my lives. We always do it as a fun, you know, fun thing together. We get up there and we're all rubbing, and we're like, "Hey, oh my gosh!" You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's always, a, but it's it's such an important thing because it really does give you those profiles and gives you an idea, and um, you can you can see the differences even within the same genes. You know, you can see the differences and, and smell the differences, and um, that's that's a big selector for me, and. Um, but but during the late flower stage, you just um, kind of just want to you're focusing so much at that point. It begins so much on seed production at that point. So you kind of you kind of back off what we typically would normally be using for a, a normal uh, medicinal plant uh, in producing flower. You know the phosphorus and, and then the potassium, and you know we kind of we kind of back. I mean potassium is okay, but the phosphorus and stuff we typically back off and. Uh, Kind of just keep running a little nitrogen and um, and whatever else we may need, but um, at that point, yeah, you're you're pretty much already selected once you get to that stage. Okay, so you've actually selected the female within the flower stage at the point where it needs to be pollinated. You don't actually grow a plant, take clones, finish off plants. Oh yeah, oh, I'm, oh. I'm a big clone. Well, yeah, for for males mostly, we we we, we use cloning as a big for males, but um, 
with females, I don't necessarily have to cut as many clones. Um, you always do as a precaution, um, typically, just to be sure and always be able to go back. Uh, but males, sometimes you're cutting two clones per male um, just to make sure that they all get out there successfully. And, you know, you want to test them and make sure it's just a lot more testing uh, clones with a male than it is a female. Okay, so you are actually completing the female, smoking it, yeah, yeah, and then taking the clones of that female and using that to pollinate? Yeah, yeah okay. it's a lot of patience. Yeah, typically, yeah, all, all that's pretty much the whole program is cloning. Uh, male and female, mostly cloning, because you got to be able to go back. And, and revegging. We do some revegging at times. Um, with females, we reveg. Um, I particularly don't do it as much because um, we got cloning, you know. Uh, as long as you're working with a – that's why I try to select early on in the process so we don't have too many females to have to clone from. Um, but with males, you kind of it's, – it's a much tougher process. You, you know, I try to use other – other people to help me in that case when it comes to males because males you don't want to even sit them together you know even separated from females even them together they'll even cross pollinate each other like not well not you know but you don't want pollen from one male being on another male that you you know because it happens so you want to actually separate them individually as well you know it gets kind of tricky so clones are very important Okay, that makes sense. And now, around what day of flower do you typically pollinate the females? Uh, well, we try to pollinate exactly around the time where we're seeing those first white pistols start to bunch up. You know, we're seeing those white pistols because we know those are the pistols that typically catch that pollen. And uh, whether you, uh, if you have a male just hanging in there, you might want to, you know, just shake a, shake a little bit in there and... Uh, you know, you always kind of want to start your mail off earlier. You know, you want to start the mail off earlier. And uh, once, because the female is going to take, you know, especially with a regular male, uh, it's not much you really have to do in that case, unless you, you've stored pollen and you're bringing it back uh, to artificially inseminate. Okay. And then uh, what's the ideal flower time once pollinated for healthy seeds? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, so typically seeded flowers take longer to de develop. They, they usually take longer than an unseeded um, uh, female. And in general, seven weeks, um, eight weeks, typically, you'll, you'll, you'll generally know. It's, it's, when it comes to seed, you know, seeds in general, it's a really visual thing. Um, not really much you can sort of sort of similar to trichomes it's, it's really visual thing uh you know once you see the uh the, the casing kind of crack or you know you kind of visually see the seed it looks like it's developed based on color and size that's pretty much all your determined determining factors right there i gotta imagine that genetics has something to do with it as well right if you have like a 12-week flowering uh 12 week flowering oh, yeah. strain yeah. right yeah. it would probably yeah. need to go longer yeah. than the seven eight weeks that, that you mentioned so but yeah i mean i, I think you bring That's up a good point is like um because i've technically i'm a breeder yeah i don't call myself a breeder but vader og called me That's a breeder really because i did one cross i made one cross it was briscoe og cross with pakistan valley so technically i'm a breeder but <laughs> i know exactly what you mean when you say that it's kind of like you can see like the calyx is open with the seed popping out and you can see like the color of the yeah. seeds and so on and so forth so you can kind of get an idea then it's visible so i totally understand what you mean by that one so okay so i know the answer to this next question but i'm still going to ask it just because there's an audience here that probably doesn't know the answer some people don't know the answer should pollen from a female producing nanners be used for breeding so the bananas the the male stamen that comes out it depends on how the, the nanners were created so if we have purposely stressed the female um to create nanners in a sense of like light stress or heat stress that's not and, and then we we bring that that hermaphrodite hermaphroditic trait uh out to the forefront then it was dominant in the first place right so we don't want to use that for breeding stock. Now, in the sense where nanners were created by the female herself in that last-ditch effort to, you know, self-pollinate and um, preserve her own genetics, in that sense, 
she wasn't uh, that that most likely that hermaphroditic trait wasn't dominant in her. She did it herself, at, you know, at, towards the end, thinking like, oh, you know, this is the end of my life cycle. I got to pollinate. I haven't been pollinated. Got to pollinate. So in that sense, it's really good because technically that's uh, self-pollination, which uh, the offspring uh, of every self-pollination are going to be 50% more stable. And um, so that's why I say it gets tricky when we use the term hermaphrodite or hermy. Uh, it's really important in knowing how it was developed. And, you know, we've got two different types of hermes technically. We have um, ball sex, which, um, which typically come from us reversing a female, whether we're using colloidal silver or uh, gibberellic acid or, or whatever method you're using, we're then stopping the product, the, the, the production of ethylene. And, and causing the female to then create male parts. So in that case, that's also not, uh, the hermaphroditic trait most likely is not dominant in that case. Uh, it's most likely recessive and, um, uh, you know, depending on, you know, it, it could be either way, but, you know, uh, you would know if, if, you know, in that case, because we wouldn't use it in the first place. But in that case, yeah, it's most likely not dominant. It would be dominant in a case where we, use stress to create nanners yeah that's that's not good we don't want to use that as breeding stock okay we'll get deeper into feminizing in, in a little bit here i want to stick on yeah. hermaphrodites for one uh, few more questions here so should pollen from pollen sacs coming from a hermaphrodite so the hermaphrodite i'm talking about is say the plant grows flip it over to flower start growing pistols shortly after you see pollen sacs there should that be used for breeding? No. So that is what we're talking about in the case of a natural herm. Yep. Okay. That's that's more of a natural herm where that where that trait is dominant in that in that. So that that's going to also pass off that dominant trait to the offspring. Um, and many of those uh, offspring are going to have, or, or just like you you said, going to flower and produce pollen sacs. And then you did mention through Instagram that it's important to understand the hermaphroditic trait. What are some other things that we should kind of know about that that you haven't talked about yet? Yeah, just knowing and, and being able to ask, ask the qualifying questions to a breeder. So um, in many cases, uh, you know, growers, they get the hermaph, you know, they get the hermy, hermaphroditic trait, and they panic and they say, oh, what, you know, what's going on? You know, the breeders blaming you, they're blaming the lights, they're blaming the, you know, they're blaming the humidity or the environment, the, the, you know, the, the growers like, no, it's you, you got bad genetics, you're not stable. So we have to find a medium and the medium is education. So if you know what to look for and you know what to expect and you know why um, this may have hermied in the first place, then you, you're in a much better position, you know, as to no one having to point the finger and say, because you say, hey, well, maybe I, I might have let this female, uh, uh, you know, sit for a little bit longer than I normally should have. And, you know, I could tell that's probably why I may have six or seven seeds in the bud here. But, um, or if, you know, you, you know, you, you're dealing with instable uh, genetics, and that is a thing, that is a real thing. And that's why uh, when we're dealing with uh, F1s and, 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 you know, we're really dealing with the, uh, 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 unstable. Even with F2s, we're dealing with a large variety uh, of, of, of uh, genetics. So you want to um, really do your best to take your time and be patient and stabilize your, 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 your genetics as much as possible so that uh, it goes both ways and you got to meet in the middle with education. So, Okay, that's good info. Feminized seeds, let's move on to them. They're becoming more and more popular. People love to be able to plant a seed and just about always yeah. just about guaranteed that it's going to be female nine times out of 10 or maybe 9.9 .9 times out of 10. Oh. Um, how do you create feminized seeds? Um, through reversing a female and stopping the production of ethylene. Uh, the ethylene, uh, uh, once you stop it or once you slow it down, the female starts to uh, create uh, pollen sacs and male parts. And um, that's that's what, at that point we can um, typically pollinate the female and create feminized seeds. So all the offspring uh, will be female offspring. And there are several different ways you can do that, right? Do you want to yeah. touch into the different ways? Uh, Colloidal silver, yeah. gibberellic acid. Can you talk to us yeah. about those ones? 
Yeah, so uh, colloidal silver is probably the more popular one. Um, something you can actually even make at home. I mean, I don't make it myself. Uh, I do uh, typically make my own uh, mixtures of colloidal silver uh, and gibberellic acid. I try different things, but typically you can go with uh, 50 parts per million, 40 parts per million uh, colloidal silver, which is uh, actually silver, you know, a silver and uh, distilled water. Uh, a little bit of uh, conductivity in there, and then you got colloidal silver. Um, uh, that's pretty much my recommended method. Uh, that is probably the most popular method, in my opinion. Um, so uh, it's pretty simple. That, that's that's typically how most breeders will reverse a female. When would you apply that? Uh, during I would start around two weeks, three weeks vegetative stage. You want to start. Uh, you want to start as early as possible. Uh, you want to hit the corners, you want to hit as much. It depends. I mean, how you're, you know, you have different methods of reversing as well. Some breeders might just want to reverse one plant. Uh, I mean, one branch, rather, I'm sorry. One branch as to where, uh, you know, me, typically, I reverse the entire plant. Um, so I start really early. I just start spraying the entire plant. But if um, you're more concerned about just one branch, then you might uh, start just focusing on that one branch, covering the rest of it. Um, and uh, being able to spray that one branch in about three weeks, two to three weeks, and uh, some people two to three, four times a day. It's kind of up to you, and it's really strain-specific. Uh, you, you know that. It's, it's pretty strain-specific. Some some strains are really hardy where they, they don't like to be reversed, so you may have to apply a, a stronger solution uh, more, more times per day, uh, and some are really sensitive to it. So, But that's typically the method we use. Okay, so you do it. You're spraying in veg, and then are you flipping the flowering, letting them flower, and still continuing to spray? Or when do you stop that spray? It depends on auto flower or, or photo period. So in a case of an auto flower, um, you kind of know when she's reversed. Uh, once she starts growing those uh, balls or pollen sacs, you can kind of you can stop with you know. And with a um, a male, or I'm sorry, a photo period. You want to just um, start in about three, give it about three, four weeks of uh, about a month of spray. Flip it to flower and um, continue for about another two weeks. And you should see, you know, you should see the results probably within a week or two. So basically what will happen, the plant will start producing nanners, right? And then you would harvest the nanners or, or how does that, or it would self-pollinate yeah. and then you would, it would just grow seeds on that particular plant? Well, in the case of a reverse female, she's gonna grow actual pollen sacs like a male would. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're actually stopping the process of ethylene, which um, causes her to kind of turn into half male. So in that case, it's not necessarily nanners. Nanners are always gonna be related to stress, whether it's bad stress that we caused or whether it's stress that the female caused on her own. But um, those um. Those we don't want to collect for, we don't want to collect nanners for uh, pollen uh, to use as, um, uh, you know, a gen, uh, you know, we don't want to breed those. Uh, we only want to breed male pollen sets, balls. So we can kind of relate it to that. If it doesn't have ball, if it's not balls, then we don't want to use it to breed. Gotcha. How about gibberellic acid? Yeah, I don't, I don't use it as much. I don't, I don't. I mean, I, I use it a little bit in a mixture that I've tried um, that I'm working on, but I don't I don't I don't recommend it. Uh, I would I only recommend colloidal silver um, because um, that's that's what I've always used and that's what I'm always I'm just starting to try a new mixture. But um, I mean, either way, I always go back to just colloidal silver. We try we try experiment with different things all the time, but you know that's how we learn. Yep. What's the best way to stress a female without using chemicals? Mm. Stress a female without using chemicals if you want to um, stress test. Stress in order to kind of get them to, I guess, self-pollinate and create feminized seeds, right? Okay, so, so a, a female is going to self-pollinate on her own. So for, for anybody interested in um, wanting to... Um, getting to stabilize, you know, first-time breeders, I will recommend self-pollination being that rotalization is what, what is the term. Rotalization is where we typically will let the mm, the female plant uh, take a little bit longer than we necessarily would. 
and we'll end up with some seeds out of that. So that's going to be stable. It's going to be 50% more stable, the offspring, than the mother plant was, as well as, um, you know, it's a good way to kind of get your feet wet. But we don't ever want to uh, stress a female out purposely to use her pollen to create. Uh, because if we can stress a female out and make her create nanners, then that means that her hermaphroditic trait is dominant in her genes. So we don't want to, She's not breeding stock in that case. We want to put her to the side. We don't want to use that. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. That was... I was going to say that was a listener uh, question. It was through Instagram. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a really good question because it does get really tricky. And, and that's why I always stress to um, get as much education as we can as far as the hermaphroditic trait and nanners and pollen sex and the difference between the two and how nanners are created, how pollen sex can be created and um, how they relate to feminized seeds because everyone loves feminized seeds. It's like, I want feminized. I want, yeah, you got feminized. I want feminized. I'm like, you know, so, you know, sometimes I'm a pain because I'm like, hey, hey, check this article out. You know, if, if you don't know, do you know about this? And why, why do you really want feminized seeds? You know, you know, do you understand the, the risk and the risk in feminized seeds? Because it is a little bit of risk. You know, we're dealing with hermaphroditic traits. And so you want to go in. And when you when you go to a breeder and you're asking them for feminized seeds, I also want my, my, my team to be able to ask those follow-up questions. Well, what generation has your feminized seeds been bred to? How long have you, what, what are some of the traits that you breed for with, within your feminized seeds? What's the chances that they might, I might get nanners uh, during early in the flower stage? Now you ask a breeder these type of questions and they're like, hold up, you know, either they're going to be legitimate or they're going to back off and say, you know what? I don't want your business. Get out of here. You know, and um, that's that's the kind of we want that on both ends. We want we want to be educated. Makes sense. Yeah. Just one last thing on that last question. Uh, this particular person said that the question was, how do you stress a female to herm without using chemicals? He had mentioned he's been using light to do that. He oh, yeah, move it from twelve twelve to eighteen six for a couple of days, and then back to twelve twelve. So you're saying that oh, you yeah, shouldn't do that because it's it's stressing. Well, the you could do it. So we do that to 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 look for sexual stability. So that's the only time I use light or heat in order to stress a female because I want to see if she's sexually stable or not. Now, if I know if I put light on her and she she's um she withstands it and she doesn't hurt me, then she's sexually stable. So she's good breeding stock. But if I put light on her and heat on her and she turns out, then I'm you know I'm, I'm cutting her. She's no good. She's bad. Because if I use her to breed, if I use that pollen that was so easy to flip like that into a herm, then that pollen is also going to be, uh, or, or the offspring are also going to have that trait dominant within their genes. Gotcha. And you mentioned heat. Can you talk to us about a little bit more, like what, how much heat, like when do we apply it, so on and so forth, in order to stress it that way? Yeah, any, uh, 80, 85 and up, I would say 89, 90, any, any, 90 and up is a good uh, indicator of uh, heat stress. If you can go to 100 if you if you can, um, but anything anything above 89, I would say, is um, typically 90, depending on your environment, depending on the strain. Everything is really strain related too, you know. Especially if we can get deep with that indica and sativa, you know, related stuff, and you know, so it's so related to that and how how they handle heat and, and stresses. But um, yeah, I would say 90s is a good. Uh, stressor but yeah light light is definitely a good stressor you can um you can apply light and and definitely flip flip a uh, female to herm but once she does that we she's no good good info okay good to know autoflower seeds another popular thing autoflower oh. more and more favorite. yeah yeah so how do you create those seeds um same way uh those are generally feminized seeds uh, most likely uh they've they are regular as well, but the popularity uh, popularity of feminized seeds and autoflower have kind of ran neck and neck. So now we just got feminized autoflower everywhere. And same process, we reverse a female uh, with colloidal silver and uh, use that pollen, collect that pollen. It's a much more intricate, like I said, it's a much more uh, difficult process. Uh, requires much more patience and much more time consuming. But um, that's where you want to use a, you know, definitely have your tweezers handy and be able to collect 
each individual pollen sac as they uh, as they develop and um, collect as much pollen as possible to be able to use and store if it's even enough to store. But uh, that's when it gets tricky, autoflowers. There's more and more seed banks that and breeders that are releasing autoflowers and they don't end, actually end up being autoflowers. So stability mm. comes into to question, you know, and, and I heard you have to breed multiple multiple levels down in order to stabilize. What exactly does it mean to stabilize a variety? So to stabilize is simply just reducing genetic variability, just reducing variability. Ultimately, we want to achieve heterozygous, uh, or I'm sorry, homozygous status. We want to achieve homo, homozygosity in a sense, where uh, uh, that's just one phenotype. Uh, two, two particular, uh, one particular alios or, or one particular version per gene. And um, that is homozygous status. That's what we want to achieve uh, through generations of selective breeding. Um, we, we, uh, we, we, we dumb it down to just one phenotype. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what it is to stabilize the strain. Okay, and then for autoflowers in particular, I heard you need, like I mentioned, you need to go down multiple generations. Is there, is it like four generations down or what was the, do you know? Well, either way, um, it's multiple generations if you're stabilizing a strain. You're never going to be able to stabilize a strain without going down multiple uh, F2, F3, F4, F5. You'll get to, you may get, and, and that's the thing too. So stabilizing is also in the sense of the breeder. Uh, what you may consider stable may not be stable to me. So you may think like, hey, I got my greens, you know, I got my vigor, I got my big buds, I'm stable. You know, but most important is sexual stability. We have to selective, however long it takes to selective breed and inbreed or line breed or inbred line, IBL, in terms of what we call it, IBL. Uh, we have to go down that line and IBL for several generations until we remove the hermaphroditic trait, as well as try to catch all of the things that we like. Uh, trichome develop or production, uh, you know, uh, you, you may want purple buds as well, but all of those are secondary to sexual stability. And sexual stability takes years. That takes four, five, six, seven generations. You can pick up on the cool stuff along the way, but um, until you run into that roadblock of, uh, after about the eighth, eighth F8, uh, F7, F8, you'll run into a roadblock of our, our being technically sterile, where um, you, you're like, okay, now um, I'm, I'm uh, sexually stable, uh, but no further I can go. That's when we back cross. That's when we go back to the parent. Uh, we bring out that stored pollen, and uh, you know, then we can go back and re re-enter some of those traits that we loved in the beginning. That's the correct way to do it. But yeah, it's gonna take years no matter what. If you wanna have a good line, it's, it's gonna take years. That makes sense. Good information there. Okay, so next one is another listener question. It has to do with the chart. So I'm gonna put this chart on the screen right now. If you're watching on YouTube, if you are on one of the podcast platforms, maybe you can explain it for them. This chart that I'm showing right now, you can see you know, from the top P1 male, P1 female, and then it goes down. You get your F1s, your F2s, F3s, F4s, F5s, F6, and then actually it connects back to a P1 new generation. Uh, first, could you explain this chart for us in layman's terms? All right, so so P1 is going to be the parent uh, the parent generation. That's where we're starting off with uh, mother and father. So that is um, that is um, where, we're, where we're basically starting off the, the, the generation, the, the, the outcross of the mother and the father. That is the start of that generation. And that's, um, that's those offspring are going to get us into F1. All right. Those offspring are going to get us to F1. So the difference between F1 and F2 is F1 is the start using the parents. F2 is the actual start of the line of the inbred line using the offspring. So in this case, when you see F2, 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 that's when we've opened up to the most variety, the most choices of, of choosing our phenotypes. 
and our characteristics and our ilios is what we call them, um, our versions of what we, uh, that's when we start our selective breeding process, that F2 generation. And then from there is what you pretty much see um, is the selective process of um, him picking uh, or whoever it is, picking, <laughs> picking certain offspring there and, um, you know, breeding them together. And uh, as we go down, we just run into different generations. Uh, uh, at attempts to stabilize the strain, you got A, M. These are all um, characteristics that are being uh, selectively bred for. Uh, we go down in the F4, F4, F4. So, yeah, he kind of stops in, in F6. And that's typically uh, at that point where I would generally back cross back to the parent. And that's where you see P1 all over again. So it's funny. That's how we, we spoke just about that right before. So that was that's cool. Really cool chart. That's that's genetic mapping right there. That's what we use for, uh, you know, that's what we use to, for reference. Gotcha. Gotcha. So definitely a good chart to have on hand. Absolutely. The question that had in regards to this chart is if two parents are bred together, which level of generational offspring will show the strongest level of expressions in terpenes? Okay. So that is an awesome question, but we're not necessarily going to... So what we're, so you'll get the most variety in the F2 generation. So you'll probably find your, your, your best options and your strongest terpenes and variety right there in the F2 generation because you'll have more to choose from. Okay. So that's where, I, that's where that's what we want to start our hunt for. That's what we want to start looking in the F2s. A lot of people think it's F1s that are, really? you know what I mean? I think that was a misinformation that was passed around. Yeah, it shows you right here in the chart. You, you see the F1 is um only limited amount of offspring compared to F2. Where we have a wide variety. We kind of open up the gene pool at that point, and um, we get such a wide selection. And that's where we start the selective breeding process to say, hey, because we're going to get instability as well. We get a wide variety where we get instability. So now we have to focus on selective breeding and, and making sure that we stabilize or work towards stabilizing by picking the right, picking the right, uh, the right offspring. Now, what's your opinion on breeders releasing F1s versus releasing F2s versus, you know, is there something that they should only release you know, stability purposes, for example? Do you feel like, in your opinion, that breeders should only release stable genetics that are, you know, F5s, F6s, or whatever? That's a good question. But I can't say that I would suggest people only – because – we need genetics too. We need we we need to experience. You know, we need to experience. So, um, if everything was stable, it's like that would be a perfect world, right? We don't want to live in a perfect world. We want to be able to um, experience these things and um, uh, apply some of the education that we, we that we learned uh, into right right there, uh, hands on, and, and to be able to do that. You know, I don't I don't have anything against F ones, but you got to educate. Like me personally, I uh, you know. I, I educate my people and say, hey, this if, you know, this is an F1. Typically, I only offer it in a certain way, typically like an auction or something like that. But, um, and when I do, you know, I make sure that they understand, like, hey, you know, and it's sort of like when I did with dogs, you know, if I sold you a puppy, I'm like, man, hey, you going to send me pictures? Or, you know, you're like, I got, you know, I'm calling every week. They're like, all right, man, she's good. You know, but that's kind of the same way with the genetics. You know, you want to, it's, it's like your offspring or your children, you know, you kind of want to follow up and make sure that the new parents, they're okay, they're well taken care of, and that they don't run into any issues. So typically when you do that, it's not a problem giving out F1s. You just got to keep a good relationship and customer service is always first. Okay, that's a good answer. Talking about dogs, I want to touch on this real quick, and it doesn't have to be a long answer, but can you tell mm -hmm. us like some of the things that are the same for dog breeding and plant breeding, and then also some things that are different for dog breeding versus plant breeding? Yeah, for sure. Um, literally, when it comes to the, the genetics of it, everything is exactly the same besides um, being able to reverse. That's literally the only thing that's different. Um, even when we come down to cloning, um, you, can, you can clone a puppy, especially uh, nowadays. That's why eventually we'll, we're evolving into the tissue culture. And um, people clone puppies using tissue culture, and you know, through through our gardening, we'll eventually start to see people, preferably 
creating their cones through tissue culture because you can store it for much longer. Um, it's that much similar to where there's only literally one um, difference as far as that that I can tell, reversing, being able to reverse a female. I don't really know anything else that's different. XY chromosomes, everything's literally the same. Um, even some of the terminology um, that I learned years ago through, you know, it, it connected, and I'm like, wow, okay, like hybrid vigor, and it is, is a different term in the dog world, but it means sort of the same thing um, in, in the plant world. That's interesting. Yeah, I was just curious on that one. So I have a few more questions for you. Uh, what advice do you have for someone who's a beginner breeder or someone who's considering starting to breed? Have fun, man. Have fun. Don't get discouraged. Understanding it's going to take your time. Um, understand that uh, you definitely are going to have to have a passion for it. Um, you got to have a love for it because this is literally your life's work. So, And when you look at it as your life's work uh, and you have fun with it at the same time, nothing else really matters, man. Um, you know, do it for fun. Do it for your own personal use, for your own medicine, for your own, for the own love, you know, your love of it, the love of the gardening, and, you know, you'll be fine. I like that. I think that's really good advice for sure. So wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you, and what do you got upcoming in the future? On Instagram, uh, the real Zaza Genetics on Instagram. Um, follow us. Uh, you know, you can follow me, any of my team. Shout out to my team. It's so important to me. It's Blunt Love Reviews. Um, carrot Top Crops, uh, No Limit Edibles, these are all people that are oh, so important to me. Um, but yeah, so we have a couple collaborations going on with THC Tone, um, uh, Greenhouse Huey, we got some major collaborations, Tino's Genetics, we got some uh, collaborations going on with these guys coming out really soon. And uh, other than that, you can find us on Instagram. Cool. I'll link his Instagram down in the description section below. So you can click on that. Give him a follow. Zaza, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you, it's been a pleasure, man. I appreciate you. Definitely learned quite a bit here. And I thought it was pretty pretty interesting here about the crossover with the dog breeding as well. And, and we got deep into some things that uh, I wasn't expecting to get that deep into. So I'm really glad that I had you on uh, the thank podcast so today. Much, dropping some knowledge. So really appreciate that. If you guys enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up button. As many Definitely. thumbs up as possible. Trying to get this, uh, trying to get the YouTube algorithm to show up in people's suggested feeds, and that helps. Commenting helps. Sharing helps. If you, for some reason, are not subscribed to the channel, click that subscribe button. Post these podcast episodes every single week. Usually, it's on Saturdays. Sometimes it's on Sundays. But every single weekend, we post a new podcast episode, not just on YouTube, but we're also on podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere podcast platforms are available. This podcast is available. And if you're on Apple Podcasts in particular, please leave a rating and review. We passed 100 ratings and reviews, going for 200. If you're listening on there and you want to take a minute to leave a rating and review, I would greatly appreciate it. Once again, Zaza, thank you so much for coming on, just dropping some serious knowledge bombs on this podcast episode. I think it was great. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yes, sir. Truly humble, man. Have a blessed day, brother. Thanks.